Today's program is an encore of a 2018 interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Jennifer Barry Hawes about her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre and the Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. This encore is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, my guest is Jennifer Barry Hawes, author of Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre, and The Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. Before we begin, I'd like to offer a word of caution to our listeners. Our conversation will include a recounting of what happened at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston on June the 17th, 2015. This is based on the accounts of survivors. Some listeners may find parts of this conversation disturbing. Jennifer, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I wanted to tell a story that was more in-depth and nuanced and um, accurate than the general storyline that had come to form around this shooting, which was really the narrative of forgiveness Um, which, while beautiful, really did not tell the whole story of what was going on with the family members and the survivors of of, um, this shooting, and also really didn't accurately tell the story of forgiveness itself. Let's just kind of start at the beginning, because that's, that's what you do with the book. Yes, I knew the basic story. I followed it like everybody else did in print and various media. But I found myself riveted as you recounted the events, particularly as you brought not just the victims and their families, but how first responders felt. And then the larger Charleston community reacted to this. So I think it might be appropriate, even though it's just been four years, to tell the story again for our listeners. Well, it was June, um, middle of June, and it was about 8 o'clock at night when uh, a young man arrived at Emmanuel Amy Church, which is an historic black church in the heart of downtown Charleston. Um, He had scouted out the church for months before uh, and parked waiting for the Bible study to begin. Um, The Bible study came after a large quarterly conference of the church, so members were leaving mostly. Um, About 60, 70 people had attended this larger meeting, and all but 12 of them uh, left. Twelve people remained, including the church's pastor, uh, Clemente Pinckney, who, of course, also was a Democratic state senator, Uh, along with Reverend Dan Simmons, who was a retired AME minister who helped to handle many of the day-to-day operations of the church, uh, as well as um, uh, the remainder of the Bible study. So 12 people remained, uh, and Reverend Pinckney's wife and his young six-year-old daughter um, were in his office. Uh, Jennifer Pinckney was working on some lesson plans. She was a, a school librarian, and their little girl was watching cartoons. So they began their Bible study, and um, this young white man, Dylan Roof, walked in. Uh, about what time of night is this now? This would have been about nine o'clock. I'm sorry, about eight o'clock at night. Okay, it was kind of late because uh, Senator Pinckney had been involved in a Senate budget meeting in Columbia, so he was late getting to to the church. He had, he had come to the church, that's right, after um, after budget discussions. And in fact, the Bible study began late because of the quarterly conference beforehand had um, taken some time. Uh, and so they were late, and they actually thought about not holding it or postponing it another night or perhaps shortening it. Um, but Myra Thompson, who had been relicensed just that night, was going to lead this study and was very excited. She'd been preparing for quite a while. Um, and so they decided, you know, let's at least do some of it. So they sat down around uh, 8, and as I mentioned, the young man walked in, and Reverend Pinckney uh, welcomed him, and, and this man sat right beside him. Then they meet for about an hour. That's right. They, they meet for about an hour. Uh, they discuss a passage in Mark that's called the parable of the sower. You have really some of the backbone of Emmanuel. The ministerial staff is almost all there. 
Um, lifelong members are there. And, and it's in terms of age it's, and gender, it's really a cross-section mm-hmm. of the congregation. It really is. Uh, Tawanza Sanders uh, was the youngest, um, 26, and you went all the way up to Susie Jackson in her 80s. Uh, it really was a cross-section of people uh, who had been um, just vibrant parts of the church, most, most or many of them their entire lives. Was there a lull and Dylan Roof stood up, or, or did he, let's recount what he did. He remained quiet most of that um, that hour they, they spent discussing the passage, and it wasn't until they closed their eyes for um, the closing prayer that he uh, reached into a tactical pouch he had around his waist, which looked like a fanny pack. So it wouldn't have been tremendously unusual to see someone wearing one of those because it was mid-June, the height of tourist season in Charleston. He appeared to to the survivors when I spoke with them later uh, to be perhaps a College of Charleston student or a young tourist who had stopped by. So he reaches into this tactical pouch and pulls out a gun, uh, and he, he shoots Clemente Pinckney first and then um, turned the gun on to the others. They were sitting around four round tables like you might see at a picnic or a banquet hall, uh, and most of them began to dive under their tables instinctively because there was not uh, a way to get across an open space to reach the doors. He fired and then reloaded his gun, right? He fired how many times? He fired about 77 times, uh, according Seven, to himself. 77 times. That's right. And they, they found, as I recall, uh, slightly fewer than that um, shell casings and bullets. So it's it, it was somewhere around there, though. And he was calculating, methodical about what he did. He was, and in fact, he had uh, he had brought eight magazines with eleven bullets in each um, to represent the number eighty-eight, which is a, a symbolic number among white supremacists. Eight being the eighth letter of the alphabet, so eight-eight would represent H-H, as in Heil Hitler. Mm-hmm. So he he would have reloaded quite a number of times. Okay. There were 12 individuals in the room. Eight died quickly. Obviously, he killed nine people, but um, Tawanza Sanders um, was still alive when Polly Shepard made the first call out of the room to 911, and he was alive when the first police officers came in. And Sharonda Coleman Singleton, uh, um, they detected some pulse um, but but neither of them left the fellowship hall alive. This woman, the phone is on the floor, and he's shooting, and she calls in to nine one one. Reverend Pinckney's wife down the hall hears shooting, and she calls in nine one one. And you talk to those to Perfect. the operators, and you have their response to what what happened. Well, I, I heard the 911 phone call recording, so I didn't speak with the operators, but I spoke with the two women who made the call, uh, separate calls. So Polly Shepard was hiding beneath the table in the fellowship hall. Uh, Polly was, at the time, 70 years old, and she watched Roof um, shoot everybody, and she began to pray out loud. And Roof walked toward her. And um, as he did, Tawanza Sanders spoke up, and he said he was already shot, and he said, why are you doing this? We mean you no harm. And Roof uh, said, I have to do this. Um, You're raping our white women, and you're taking over the nation. And at that point, Polly thought she would die soon, and so she was praying out loud. And then he stepped toward her. She looked at him, and he said, have I shot you yet? And she says, no. And he said, well, I'm not going to. I'm going to leave you here to tell the story of what's happened. And then he walked away, and Polly was not sure if he was still in the room or not because she was searching desperately for a way to call for help. She spotted a phone that was not her own and managed to um, get it on. And actually, her first call, she couldn't get to go through. And then she called again and was able to reach an operator. So when you hear the call, it's just terrifying because she is not sure if he's still there or not, Mm -hmm. uh, if he's going to come back and shoot her or who's alive and who's not alive. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in the pastor's office, 
Jennifer Pinkney has heard the gunshots, she she eases the door shut and she ferries her little girl to the adjoining secretary's office, which has a door that's not in the fellowship hall, but is but shares a wall with the fellowship hall to give you a sense of how close they are. And that wall is very thin. Um, and in that room, she she um, shoves the little girl beneath the desk and implores her to be quiet. And she's reaching up on the desk and tries to find the desk phone. It's pitch black in there. And she gets it off the receiver, and it began it begins to make that beeping sound when you leave a landline off the phone. Um, so she hangs it back up. So then she has to get herself to leave the girl and go back into the pastor's office to find her cell phone. And as I said, it's pitch black because she's turned the lights off so that the shooter doesn't know they're there. She finds her cell phone, goes back, and she makes a separate call. So the 911 operators are um, then speaking to her as well, and they stay on the line with her until the police come in, in fact, which is, um, it takes takes some time. And then among the many really heart-rending moments, the first responders get there, and they're following procedures to see that the perpetrator was gone. They didn't know, given the fact that there were lots of Sunday school rooms, all sorts of places he could have hidden, their first reaction was to clear the building. And, you know, I, I've tried to put myself in their shoes, and it's just, you can't imagine. I, I remember uh, one of those officers talking about how he went in, and he passed Twanza, and Twanza at that point was still alive, but he had to pass him by because to your point, they have to make sure the space is safe. And so they, they go around the room. There's four four officers who originally go in, uh, and they don't know if there's multiple shooters. They don't know where the shooters are. Um, all they see are a number of people obviously um, dead and dying. And um, so they do uh, clear the immediate space. And one of those officers, John Lights, returns to, to um, Tawanza and actually holds his hand as he passes away. And I, I wanted to tell some of that piece of this because I, I really wanted for people to understand the scope of a tragedy like this is not only on the immediate family members and the um, church members and the survivors and everybody clearly, clearly affected in, in a terrible way, but also first responders and uh, and many others who, who were part of the story. And, and John Lights was obviously one of them. Yes. And, and he also, was he not also the officer who went in and, and found Mrs. Pinckney and the daughter. That's right. So he went into that office. He he told me about how they thought that the shooter was perhaps still in there and had already killed them or was in there and might kill them. They you know at that point everything's very um, fluid and is moving quickly. Jennifer was was rescued safely, as was the little girl. And then John returned to the fellowship hall and actually refused to leave it that night. Shortly thereafter, someone called in a bomb threat uh, to one of the local TV stations, which turned out, thankfully, to to just be a prank. But they had to clear the space and move the survivors and the family members who'd gathered at a hotel across the street. Um, but John would not leave that room, and he stayed with the bodies all night long. Uh, he said he did not want to risk that anybody would... Um, attempt to do anything to them or if anything that anything would happen to them. And I, I've often thought about what it must have been like that night being alone in there um, w- with the people who'd been killed and what that, that did to him as a human being and um, the dedication to his job. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of a 2018 interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Jennifer Barry Hawes about her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre and the Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. This encore is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. You mentioned the bomb threat, which again, you just... You try to wrap your hands about why anybody would do that, but after the ni- after the nine one one calls, you had EMTs, you had police. Uh, red and blue lights were flashing everywhere. Clearly, something major had had happened, and the police chief was in bed 
when he got the message, Mayor Riley, and everybody rushed to the scene, but then they had to move everybody from one hotel to the other simply because of safety. That's right. And and also because they needed more space. It was clear that there were going to be hundreds of people showing up. So they moved from a hotel that's sort of kitty corner to Emanuel and then to the Embassy Suites, which is on the other side of Marion Square. Yeah, because church members flooded down to Mm-hmm. Everybody had heard about uh, Senator Pinckney, um, but they weren't sure who the other victims were. And it wasn't clear even for some time because um, normally a woman uh, named Brenda Nelson would have stayed for Bible study, but she had to address an air conditioning issue at her home, and so she happened to have left. Cynthia uh, Graham heard. Um, often did not stay for Bible study, yet she had. So there was, um, and they're sort of roughly the same age. And uh, so there was some confusion as to even who was who. And Polly and Felicia in the trauma immediately after, you know, were struggling to remember exactly who was there and what, you know, you can only imagine um, just the overwhelming shock of it. And um, Polly is diabetic and she talked about how she was, you know, starting to feel um, kind of woozy and she hadn't eaten. So there was just a lot of confusion. Um, and so, yes, all of these church members flooded uh, in, loved ones of the people who possibly had been killed uh, flooded in. There were so many first responders and media and other people. Um, there were a number of pastors and civil rights activists who gathered as well and wound up actually out praying in Marion Square. Uh, it was just um, a, an, an overwhelming scene. And, and, of course, again, we didn't know where the shooter was. Nobody knew if it was multiple people. Was he planning additional attacks? There was a police helicopter flying overhead. I mean, it was um, it, it was just chaos, like almost like a, a war zone in a way. All right, Jennifer, that first 24 hours, you, know, you read it and you see how the chief of police, the mayor— Church authorities responded, and it's you know it's chaotic, but they were all very methodical, and within 24 hours they had the killer in in jail. It really was amazing, and um, it was interesting to talk with Chief Mullins and other people afterward to see how previous training that they'd received, police departments all around the country after Sandy Hook and uh, a number of other mass shootings, unfortunately, uh, have learned better practices and have trained for scenarios like this. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the family members were very thankful later for the organization that the city police department, the FBI, SLED, and others brought in terms of keeping them informed uh, as to what was happening, um, where they needed to go, what they needed to do, what were the next steps, connecting them with victim advocates. Uh, they were really grateful for the handling of that because uh, it was just it was chaotic in so many other ways. Earlier, there had been a shooting of an African-American in North Charleston. And the previous year, there had been a shooting of uh, an African-American youth by Charleston police. And so Chief Mullen didn't really know how the community was going to react. But when he went before the microphones at a press conference, I'll let you describe what happened. So Chief Mullen uh, went over to the embassy suites, which we were talking about earlier, where in a banquet hall, about 300 people had gathered, uh, church members, family members, all just waiting to find out who exactly was dead, what exactly had happened. Uh, And so he goes over with Mayor Riley and addresses them first. Now, this uh, is all delayed because of the bond threat that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he finally gets to go over there and speak with them. And then he heads to Marion Square where there's a huge media presence because you know, this occurred in the middle of the presidential primary season. And Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton both had events uh, on the weekends that bookended. Uh, this tragedy occurred on a Wednesday. So the national political press was all in Charleston. Uh, So already you had this enormous national media presence plus local reporters. Um, They're all gathered in Marion Square waiting for him. And he he approaches, and as he does, he approaches this bank of microphones that's set up. And as he does, he sees a a group of black ministers and civil rights uh, activists and leaders 
who he he knows because Chief Mullen had been there for um, for a decade or so, and he is unsure how they're going to react because. Uh, as you mentioned, um, we had just come off the shooting death of Walter Scott, an unarmed black motorist who was shot and killed by a white North Charleston police officer, uh, and the city was tense. So he approaches these microphones and this group of of black leaders, and he he isn't sure. Um, but as he he steps before the microphones, he feels them form a half moon behind him, um, which presents obviously for the cameras a picture of solidarity. And he speaks then, and he describes that there are nine people dead. And then he says, uh, and this was a hate crime. Now, he wasn't sure in those moments if that meant some legal definition or whatnot, and he told me later that that really wasn't his priority. His priority was to speak truth to people who are listening um, and to acknowledge what it was so that people would know he was going to be open and honest and accountable for what had happened. And uh, that really set the tone. And later, many people who heard that told me um, that that did give them a sense of of more that, that we were all in this together and that the police department wasn't trying to cover something up or sugarcoat it or whatnot. Uh, and I think that was one of a number of pivotal moments along with the family members' words of forgiveness and the work of, of black ministers who really worked hard to keep the influence of outside agitators at a minimum uh, in the in the weeks that followed. But those words from Chief Mullen um, really set the stage. There were security cameras at Mother Emanuel, and so they got a picture of the young man who, by the way, the two survivors, despite everything, had given a pretty clear ID of the per- of the perpetrator. That's right. And Polly Shepard even said oh, he was around 21 years old, which was exactly how old he was. And then the police put out all points bulletin. Uh, they know the vehicle, describe it. And then in North Carolina, in Shelby, they run him to ground. It's an amazing story. He uh, So Roof um, uh, took the country roads up toward Charlotte, and he stopped in Charlotte. And then he was on a road um, out in a small town, as you mentioned, Shelby. And he was um, spotted by a woman who was driving to work, who had seen his um, picture on the news that morning. And she had actually been um, praying about the tragedy and noticed him just driving. She was heading... Um, down the street, and she noticed him. And at first, you know, it's one of those things where someone kind of looks familiar, and you're not sure. And then, I, as I recall, she might have seen that he had South Carolina plates. Um, but she put two and two together, and first called her boss. She was scared, as you can imagine, except this is the person who just shot and killed nine people. What was he going to do? Um, so she eventually felt called to call by God to follow him, and she did, and was able to give police um, his location. And long story short, they pulled him over and took him into custody. He didn't resist. He still had the gun in his car, and um, they arrested him and eventually uh, shipped him back to Charleston. Then we have the bond hearing which the media was there and you know, it was instant history playing out before us and a magistrate who was setting bond asked if family members wanted to speak and they hadn't planned. Nothing was coordinated and then it just happened. And that's what to me was so remarkable was that um, I spoke with uh, with everyone who stood to speak at the bond hearing and they all said the same thing which was that they did not plan to speak that day and in fact went intending not to speak. The the bond courtroom was packed with people. It was packed um, and highly emotional, as you can imagine. This was the day after Roof was captured and therefore um, two days after the shooting itself. Really not even because the shooting was in the evening uh, of that Wednesday. And this was Friday. So in this packed courtroom, uh, all of these family members who had just lost, lost loved ones, plus Felicia Sanders, the survivor, uh, who also lost her son and her aunt, and cousin and others uh, were all in there. And so when um, the magistrate asked them to speak, uh, Nadine Collier was the first to do so. And she stood up. And Nadine is a 
um, very funny, spunky woman. Um, and she said that she felt her mother's spirit come into her and really uh, nudge her to say something and tell her what to say. And Nadine said it wasn't really even necessarily what she would have said, but she felt her mother needed to say these words. And so she stood and walked forward and she said, I forgive you. And that really set the stage for what came next, which was uh, four other people standing to speak. And they didn't all specifically say, I forgive you, although in, three of them did, three in total, including Nadine. But they all spoke in, in similar themes of of Christianity, of mercy and you know, repentance. There was not anger or calling for, right. you know. No, no. And in fact, well, there was anger in the sense of you could just feel the rawness of their pain. But they weren't yelling at him. They weren't saying, you know, I hope you, um, you know, Rot in hell. burn. Or, you know, yeah. Right. They were all speaking in, in just amazingly gracious terms. Then, of course, the next, the whole next week, I mean, this is not just a Charleston story. It's a South Carolina story. It's an American story. Governor Haley is in Charleston within a few hours of being notified. And she spends a lot of time going back and forth until Senator Pinckney's funeral. That's right. And she becomes very um, immersed in this in a really personal way, which I thought was one of the more interesting parts of the story outside of the people who were immediately affected because they lost loved ones. But uh, yeah, so then Governor Haley comes to Charleston that following morning. She um, wakes both her children to tell them she's leaving and what's happened because she didn't want them to hear it uh, from somebody else. Her husband was off with National National Guard Guard training. And so she leaves and she comes to Charleston. And interestingly, when Dylan Roof is sent back to Charleston, he is sent, she um, offers up the state plane. And so they bring him back on the plane. And then she flies in um, later that day. And she has this moment getting on the plane where she's sort of realizes this and has the heebie-jeebies of sitting so near where he had sat. So she winds up going to all nine of the funerals, um, which is pretty remarkable if you think about this this the sheer time and suffering and everything else wrapped up in that, that gesture. And this is when she had her first press conference after being notified. She clearly is very emotional. I think what she said then was it captured the whole mood of I believe the state, most most of the state. And the heart and soul of South Carolina was broken. So we have some grieving to do. We've got some pain we've got to go through. Parents are having to explain to their kids how they can go to church and feel safe. And that's not something we ever thought we'd deal with. I think that really touched people because, um, to my mind, she really did capture what so many people were feeling and thinking and people were having those conversations with their children. They were feeling that way. And I, I remember when she sort of choked up when she was talking, I had, had never seen that from her. Um, she did have a, a very practiced and polished demeanor most of the time when she spoke. Uh, and that wasn't the first time. I interviewed her later um, a number of times about about this and for the book and for the newspaper. And I remember one time in particular talking with her in the governor's mansion, um, and she did not want us to record this portion of it. And she did tear up, and she she was very emotional talking about how this had happened on her watch, and she felt a very personal sense of responsibility of uh, doing her best to lead the state and and make what could be right, right. Uh, And that was a side of her that people hadn't really seen before. And I think seeing that was really helpful for people to see this as a universal story among all of us and, and to not allow it to become an us versus them, black versus white story, at least initially. Um, and obviously, those conversations came later. But in those moments, I think um, her words and things such as the Unity March uh, and the ability of black leaders to curb the influence of, as I mentioned earlier, outside groups that wanted to protest and perhaps even riot. Uh, these things came together in a way that allowed Charlestonians and South Carolinians more broadly to come together in those moments. And while differences would arise later, at least in those first days um, and even weeks, it, it allowed people to focus on the hurt and pain and not, and not other things. 
This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of a 2018 interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Jennifer Berry Hawes about her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre and the Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. This encore is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. You mentioned the march. You want to describe how that happened? Again, this all of this is sort of spontaneous. It's not choreographed. That, and that was a unity walk. Um, that began because uh, some moms in Mount Pleasant really put out that they wanted to do something like this. And it grew and grew and grew until thousands of people gathered on either side of the Arthur Ravenel Bridge and then marched across it and met in the middle. And when they met in the middle, uh, everybody began to cheer. People had signs. They were hugging. It was really remarkable. And it was a way, I think, for people to express their sorrow and in, in ways, you know, many people didn't know the survivors or they didn't know family members of those who died. So it was a way to show their their grief. And uh, it, it was really amazing that it wasn't something that was choreographed and planned. It was very organic. Well, one thing that had to be part of it choreographed anyway was Reverend Pinckney's funeral at the, at the College of Charleston basketball arena because the President of the United States was coming. Thousands wanted to get in, so there was there was limited space. And it was a large, what, 6,000? I, I can't remember the number that the arena seats, but it, there were far more people there than yeah. could fit in. Yeah. Most people who watched remember... Many of the remarks, but I think when the president started singing Amazing Grace, as you pointed out, this was black church and this is how they worshipped. And there it was for the national audience. And it was interesting when the president started to sing and actually his the first lady had asked him if he was going to sing and he said no. But once he did, caught the organist by surprise. Mm-hmm. And then, if I remember rightly, everybody stood and sang. It was really, it was remarkable because when President Obama was flying in, he said something to Michelle about, I, I think I might sing. And she said, well, if it feels right in that moment. And it's curious if you watch the, the video of it, you can see he, he stands at the podium for almost a full 10 seconds before he starts singing as if he's thinking about it. And then you see him start. And of course, a lot of people who are there um, yeah, are, are Christians who know Amazing Grace and sang with him. He only sang the first little bit of it, but it became one of those really iconic moments of this whole tragedy. And that whole eulogy was um, just really beautiful. And one of the victim's family members, J.A. Moore, who's in the State House of Representatives now, uh, told me later that he's he's younger in his 30s. And he said that for his generation, that eulogy really felt a lot like the I have a dream speech for the older generation of African-Americans who saw it as, as a, um, a message of hope at a time of hopelessness in a lot of ways. And so he felt that. And um, that was part of the reason we decided to print the full text of his speech in the back of the book, because in it, President Obama addresses things uh, like gun violence and racism in the black church and uh, themes that became very important to the story later. And then, uh, of course, there were, as you mentioned, a total of nine funerals. And sadly, even in preparing for one of the funerals, the disconnect between some officials at, a, at Mother Emanuel and the congregation began to show. You have the funerals, and then Governor Haley decides to take an action. So she, of course, is hearing a lot about the Confederate flag because Dylan Roof, in a number of the photos that he posted on his website, is holding it up. And so it reignites this ongoing controversy about the flag's presence uh, in front of the state house. Of course, this comes after a, a compromise agreement uh, a number of years earlier in which the flag was lowered from atop the state house dome to fly out front. And uh, now there are renewed uh, demands to take it down altogether. And so she's hearing a lot of this. Of course, this 
debate has been going on for some time. And, but, two, and two previous governors had tried to do it, and that was one of the reasons David Beasley lost his they re-election. They were not reelected. Yeah. yeah. So she is looking at this with that history, of course. But she also comes at it from a little bit different perspective Governor than Governor Haley, of course, is uh, the daughter of uh, parents from India who came to the U.S. They were Sikh, or they are Sikh, and so was she as a child until she converted later after she married her husband. But she's looking at this through the lens of someone who's not white and who knows what it feels like in South Carolina to be viewed as other or not white and to not always enjoy the privileges that that brings. So so she's listening to all this, and one night she calls her husband, who, as we mentioned earlier, is out of town. I can't remember if this was right when he returned or not. Um, and she says, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about this. And she runs it by him, and they discuss it. And that Monday, uh, she calls several meetings. She meets with um, the federal delegation, as I recall. I'm going to have these meetings a little off because I can't remember exactly. She she did meet separately with uh, Senator Scott and Senator Graham. And I think Congressman Clyburn was there. Or he was there at a later meeting. And she meets with the state delegation, I think from the House and Senate. I can't, I, I have to go back and look. Sorry, but the she has four meetings in the morning trying to lay out her idea, engage, support, basically. Um, and she tells them all, basically, um, if you would stand with me, I'd be grateful. And if you don't, I won't tell anyone you were ever in this room. So she holds a press conference that afternoon and um, basically says that she would support lowering the flag and moving it to the museum and that, you know, basically it's time and that the fact that Dylan Roof held this flag up as part of his message was not something people could ignore and that the state house needed to be a place where white residents and African-Americans and, and Hispanics and everybody else felt welcome. And the fact of the matter was that not everybody saw that flag as welcoming. All right. And so then it goes to the General Assembly, and you chronicle who was for it, who was against it. It went through the Senate fairly easily. The House was another matter. I vividly remember that because we were covering the debates here. Uh, I was once again commenting on on ATV as the, the debates were going on, and it looked like they may not have had the votes in the House as a Republican caucus, which the governor attends, which is kind of unusual. And her attendance and her appealing for taking the flag down kind of rubs some of those folks the wrong way. First of all, she wasn't very popular in the House to begin with because she it was, as one of them said, her way or the highway. And the House comes back into session and there's amendment after amendment to try to basically stall and so that it, that it wouldn't happen. And then there's a very dramatic moment in that House debate. Well, in, in at the caucus meeting that you mentioned, you know, she goes and she speaks to them uh, and shares the story, which uh, some people had heard, but she wanted to reinforce it in terms of their thinking. And that was the story of when she was a little girl and they lived in Bamberg and she and her father um, drove to Columbia and they passed this vegetable stand and they stop. And her father, who is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Sikh, he still wore a turban, um, always has, and did not stop doing that, uh, even when they moved to Bamberg, and it elicited quite a number of stares and curiosity at first. Um, So he stops, and he's picking out his vegetables, and the produce stand owner calls the police. And it's essentially a story of racial profiling. Uh, and, and her father was a very intelligent academic who was, he's very tall and sort of a graceful, kind kind of presence. So the police come and he pretends like he doesn't notice this. Of course she does. And he picks his vegetables out, vegetables out and he leaves. And she talked about how every time she drove by that vegetable stand after that, it was like a symbol to her of that moment and the way people viewed her parents simply because they were different and they were not 
you know, white Christian Americans. So uh, she tells this story as a way of reinforcing the idea that, again, that the state house needed to be a place of welcome for all people, and the flag was a barrier to that. And when she tells the story, um, some people are receptive to it and some are not. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, some of the house members there um, are irritated because they don't want to be lectured to by her. They felt in that moment it was probably going to pass anyway, and you know maybe it was a bit of grandstanding. Um, she told me later that she felt it was important to share that story, um, to show the personal nature of, of how this symbol played out for people who were not white. And so then they returned, and they, and they went back and debated for quite a while still after that. And then there is a very dramatic moment because there's a amendment after amendment that gets voted down and it's still another one gets introduced and then there is this moment captured again live and this is, I think you mentioned when Jenny Horn stands yeah. up and she um, is very impassioned she basically is saying you know what what is wrong with you why are we doing this if we can't do this after these people were killed by a racist killer what are we here for I mean she's very um, angry and it really becomes again one of those iconic moments that people look at and they they kind of feel the tone shifting. Uh, and I I think, again, some people thought she was grandstanding, but a lot of people really appreciated her passion and the fact that she stood and um, voiced what they were thinking. I'd like to, to read what uh, Representative Horn said. And again, here is a middle-class white woman, appropriate suit and pearls, and this is what she says. Uh, you, said, you said she unleashed a four-minute torrent of fury and tears about the fact that nothing was happening in the House. I cannot believe that we do not have the heart in this body to do something meaningful, such as take a symbol of hate off these grounds on Friday. She hollered at her colleagues. If any of you vote to amend, you are ensuring that this flag will fly beyond Friday. And for the widow of Senator Pinckney and his two daughters, that would be adding insult to injury. And I will not be a part of it. If we amend this bill, we're telling the people of Charleston, we don't care about you. We do not care that somebody used this symbol of hate to slay innocent people who are worshiping their God. In her pink suit and pearl, she concluded, I have heard enough about heritage. Whew. It was something else. It was something else. And everybody at that hour was tired and exhausted. Um, this debate had gone on um, uh, all day long. It was late at night. Yeah, it was, a, it, it was really um, a moment. Uh, and then the flag came down. And that was uh, another remarkable moment, you know, to see um, particularly so many African-Americans gathered around the State House to watch that. Uh, if you remember, uh, it was lowered by an African-American highway patrolman. And, and so the whole, the whole visual of that was just remarkable. Um, but I will say, despite the joy that was felt at that moment, uh, I remember Reverend Joe Darby, who's a, also a prominent civil rights activist in Charleston, saying to me, he said, well, all it took was the deaths of nine black people. And I think that summarized the, the dueling feelings at that moment. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of a 2018 interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Jennifer Barry Hawes about her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre and the Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. This encore is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. What you have done after that in your book is deal with basically the PTSD of the relatives of the victims, those who were first responders. And four years afterwards, can you kind of summarize how you found those folks? Well, there's still um, a considerable amount of bad feelings between some of them in the church about their uh, leaving Emmanuel and why. Part of the reason that some of them left was because of the way the church handled the donations. They felt that they were not transparent. Um, they resented the fact that the church kept more than half of the donations for itself. 
and shared less than half for the nine victims' families and survivors to split uh, amongst themselves. And in particular with Felicia Sanders, who, as we mentioned earlier, lost her son and her, her aunt and was survivor. Felicia's family received no additional money to help with her granddaughter, who she's raising. Um, the little girl was 11 years old at the time, so she's a teenager now, and has needed and will need for much of her life intensive therapy. And that has to be paid for. And so for Felicia, she remains very sad and angry that the church has not helped to pay for any of that. Uh, the church leaders, that is, have not made a gesture toward the granddaughter to help her or show compassion or offer ministry and that sort of thing that for Felicia is very important. We had a, an event to launch this book at the College of Charleston, and Felicia attended with her husband. And she stood and said then that she felt like the church leaders wished they had all died that day. Um, that's how strongly she felt betrayed by them. And that is a pain I really can't imagine. So she still feels obviously very hurt. Um, Polly Shepard has had some involvement with Emmanuel. They're, they're building a memorial, and she's been part of the committee overseeing that. So she's taken some steps back, although she attends a different church now. Uh, there's a group at Emmanuel that's very concerned that the church has still never had an audit of the full church's finances to show what happened to all that money? With regard to the finances, there were letters written to individuals like the widow and what have you. All of the mail before it's delivered to them and with the address at, at Mother Emanuel had been opened. How have the AME officials dealt with this, this situation? There's not been much transparency. No, not at all. And we've asked quite a number of times, you know, they want to respond to this. Could they explain why? And to clarify, not all of the mail was open, but very, depending on the family member, they would estimate 30 to 40 percent of their letters were open before they were sent to them, with some of the envelopes being marked empty. For whatever reason, the church leadership has just not responded to that. Uh, request for comment. I've not ever heard them say why, although at one point the interim minister said that they, you know, had to account for everything that came in and out of the church, which you can understand, but also some of that mail was addressed specifically to certain people. And that's the part where they were angry. So if it said, you know, Felicia Sanders or in care of Emmanuel Amy Church or, or something like that, they felt that that mail should not have been open. Um, but the church leaders have not ever publicly, um, to me anyway, uh, explained why they did that in any detail. Well, I, I think this is a point where uh, folks might say, okay, Ms. Hollis has written a book, and she's going to get royalties off of this. You're not. No, no. And in fact, I always want to clarify that because uh, this book is the result of a partnership between the Post and Courier and St. Martin's Press um, in New York. And so the Post and Courier editors and myself and our publisher decided that we wanted to do something with the proceeds that would give back in some way. And so what we decided to do is to uh, create a summer internship program at our newspaper for journalism students of color. Our newsroom, like many newsrooms across America, is predominantly white. And it's uh, just imperative that we do a better job of of resembling the communities that we cover. Uh, and so our hope is that this will help us to do that, uh, along with another number of other initiatives. So we hope that's a way that we can um, ensure that, that something positive comes out of this tragedy. Well, you mentioned the Reverend Joe Darby and his comment right after the event, after taking down the flag. How does he feel now about about Charleston, because the whole idea of Charleston forgives, where do he and other African Americans in Charleston see the city? Well, many of them are, are glad to see some baby steps occurring. You'll remember the city council of Charleston issued an apology on behalf of the institution, or on behalf of the city for the institution of slavery, although it was a narrow vote. Um, but they're, I would say, mostly frustrated by the fact that there has not been any sort of large sort of 
policy change that would address uh, gun violence or racism or the tremendous racial disparities that plague the state and everything from education to health care to income, uh, housing. So in particular, they really wanted to see action taken to um, uh, improve background checks. A lot of people refer to it as the Charleston loophole, although that's really an, an, an inaccurate word for what it is, is that um, Dylan Roof was able to purchase his gun even though he did not ultimately pass his background check because he had a prior arrest for um, possessing a controlled substance, which could indicate he's an user abuser of drugs, illegal drugs. And um, they wanted to see the waiting period extended so that essentially you would not be able to purchase a a firearm from a a licensed gun dealer without the check being completed, which it was not in his case because uh, of an error in his background check that delayed it. And that has not happened. And to them, uh, that is a very common sense thing to do, which is to make sure that if you are required to undergo a background check, that you, in fact, receive the answer to that background check before you purchase a firearm. So they are really frustrated that there has not been any sort of um, change at all in gun laws. That was one of the things that they really had hoped to see. So the fact that the Charleston loophole is is part of the discussion in the country today about gun control That is also a legacy of what happened in June 2015. All right. Jennifer Barry Halls, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program was an encore of a 2018 interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Jennifer Barry Hawes about her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre and the Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. This encore is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.